The Real Investment Show. Welcome to the show at 617. So uh, before Michael Leibowitz joins us this morning, uh, he's having some technical difficulties on his end. Um, let's talk a little bit about this whole idea of inflation uh, itself, right? Let's talk about the specifics of inflation and the differential. And, this, and so let's, let's quantify here, too, two different types of inflationary fears. And this is, this is kind of important because... You know, if you watch some of the media, read some of the, the media, right, they talk about this idea of hyperinflation. We're going to turn back the clock and we're going to go revisit the 1970s. And, you know, that's certainly, um, you know, a possibility. Absolutely. Uh, you know, we could have very what we call high inflation. But there's a difference between high inflation and hyper inflation. And and let's talk about the difference between the two so that when you hear these things in the media, you kind of sort these things out. Hyperinflation is, and again, people will often make references back to Weimar Germany, right? We could also talk about Zimbabwe as another good example of hyperinflation. The, the way you get hyperinflation is when there is a complete loss of confidence within a country. In other words, you're losing a war. And you know, go back to you know, World War I, and this is what led to Weimar Germany, of course, and, and, the, and the example of that is they, you know, they just lost World War I, and, and that had, had led to a loss of confidence in the ability of that economy to support its underlying structure. So there's a loss of faith in the economy because of an external or internal act, right? And we can talk about, you know, Venezuela as another good example. Socialism tends to lead to bouts of hyperinflation because you start issuing too much debt and there's a loss of confidence in your ability to repay that debt. And when there's a loss of that confidence, that leads to the potential of nobody wanting your currency. And if nobody wants your currency and nobody's willing to trade with you on your currency, that's where your problem comes in. And somebody says, great, if you want a loaf of bread, you send me a million U.S. dollars, I'll send you a loaf of bread. And that's what leads to hyperinflation. It's a loss of faith in the financial currency system of a government. And this is particularly problematic when you're a fiat-based currency. What Then let's clarify that for a second. What does fiat mean? Fiat means that you have a currency backed by nothing. Okay, We used to be on a gold standard in the U.S. We're no longer on a gold standard anymore. So what backs the U.S. dollar? What gives the U.S. dollar its relative strength to every other country in the world? It's the full faith and credit of the issuer. The belief is, is that if you have a U.S. dollar, that you can show up and at any juncture, 
the U.S. government will make good on the value of that dollar. There is there is a belief in the, the underlying strength of the economic system. And this is why it's so important to protect it, doing things like socialistic trends and the things that we're doing now certainly undermines those very aspects of what support the full faith and credit of the U.S. dollar. And that's why there, there are some legitimate concerns about, you know, the, the idea uh, that the U.S. dollar could lose its place as the reserve currency in the U.S. So something very important to consider that, you know, the things that we vote for have more implications than just who's in office. It has a lot of implications about how the world sees the value of our currency. And, and our economic system is dependent upon the full faith and credit of that U.S. dollar and what we do to either support or undermine it. But hyperinflation is the end game. That's when you get to the point to where everybody says, you know what? I don't want U.S. dollars anymore. I want Brazilian Bolivars <laughs> or whatever it is, right? When they get to the point that they no longer want U.S. dollars, that's when you have hyperinflation. That's when it takes a wheelbarrow to go buy a gallon of milk. Hopefully we don't get there. High inflation, different story. Can we have high inflation? Yes, we can. High inflation is, a, is, is the culmination of three aspects of the economy. And you've got to have all three to have high inflation, like the 1970s, right? So let's go back to the 1970s. What do you have there? 1970s, you have very strong economic growth. We're growing at 8 and 9% annually back in the 50s, 60s, and the 70s. You've got very high savings rates of 8 and 9%. You have, and those are organic savings rates. Those aren't savings rates that were injected capital from the U.S. government, right? So you had, you had just high savings rates in households. You had wage growth that was growing in conjunction with the strength of the economy. And you had basically no debt levels. So what you had was this rising inflation because you had a strong economic environment. And then, yes, you had a spike in inflation because of the, of the oil embargo that caused a temporary spike in inflation. The mistake that we made, and this was the mistake that Paul Volcker made, was thinking that this inflation was permanent and started intervening to break the back of inflation, right? We were worried about high interest rates and we were worried about high inflation. And so Paul Volcker, then Fed chairman, along with Ronald Reagan, decided, hey, we needed to break the back of this recessionary bout in the economy. And while that may have seemed to be the right thing to do at the time, it started a chain of events over the next 40 years that have led to the exact opposite, a decline in economic prosperity, a decline in economic growth, a massive increase in debt to support what economic growth we do have, falling inflation, and a weaker economic environment and wider wealth gap in, in, in the economy. So inflation is both good and bad. Inflation itself is, is, is not nefarious as long as inflation is a function of organic growth wages rising, and overall interest rates supporting 
the underlying economic environment that existed, right? And so back in the 60s and the 70s, we had very strong economic growth because we were the manufacturing powerhouse of the world. We were manufacturing everything because we had, were basically rebuilding all the other countries post-World War II. Today, we're not. We're no longer the epicenter of capitalism in the world. We're now playing on a global stage where other countries have now usurped a lot of that manufacturing capability, which has the highest multiplier effect in the economy. So we have more deflationary pressures in the economy than we have inflationary pressures. There's the three Ds, which are the most important. Debts, of course, always a big problem because debt leads to slower economic growth and weaker outcomes. No matter how you want to structure it, no matter how you want to call it, you can, you can call it MMT and say, hey, it's great. Uh, debts don't really matter. They matter, especially when the debt is used for nonproductive purposes, as we are now. Second thing is, of course, is demographics. Demographic trends in any country tells you the outcome of economic prosperity over time. And we're unfortunately on the wrong end of the demographic trend. We've got the lowest population growth rate, birth rate, I'm sorry, uh, since 1940. So our demographic trends heading in the wrong direction as well. And of course, deflation is the, is the third big problem because out of all these issues, when you start looking at the fact that we haven't had real wage growth, organic wage growth, you take a look at the fact that we have a massive amount of debt in the economy. And, you know, rising deficits. And we have a displacement of the use of capital. Capital is being misused, not for things that create organic growth in the economy, which would lead to higher rates of inflation. But we have a more deflationary trend in the displacement of capital used for nonproductive purposes. Right now, as we sit here today, it takes more than 100 cents of every dollar just to support social welfare and interest on the debt. That means we're actually going into debt just to support the interest on the debt and your social welfare system, Social Security, Medicare, Medicaid, prescription drug benefits, Affordable Care Act. Everything else the government spends is out of debt. So we're increasing debt at an ever faster rate because we can't even generate enough tax revenue now to support the amount of money that we spend just on mandatory spending. And that has nothing to do with tax rates. The other side of this is, of course, is that as we continue to go forward, we continue to make decisions that lead to more deflationary pressures in the economy by shifting more focus away from what creates productivity in the economy, which is how we create economic growth. Remember, the key to creating economic growth is not consumption. Our government keeps focusing on the consumption side of the equation. They go, let's give people money to consume. Okay, all you're doing is recycling tax dollars. You're taking money from one group of taxpayers and giving it to non-taxpayers to go consume something, which means that the taxpayers that you took the money from have less money to consume with. Focusing on the consumption side of the equation does not create organic economic growth. What creates organic economic growth is getting people to produce first, earn a paycheck with which they can consume. 
The problem is, is that everything we do on the government basis is deflationary because we don't focus on the one thing that creates healthy rates of inflation in the economy, which is productivity. Come back after the break. We'll catch up some more on this. Is the, is the Fed going to taper? Right? That's the question. We'll get to that. Now we kind of have a basic understanding of the difference between inflation and hyperinflation. Let's talk about what it means to the Fed and when they're going to start to taper. That's coming up next. Don't go away. The Real Investment Show. You could be one of the 7 in 10 people requiring long-term care in your lifetime. Are you prepared for nursing home care costs averaging more than $7,600 a month? Our next virtual lunch and learn will cover the management of long-term care expenses that could make or break your retirement. Join Richard Rosso and Danny Ratliff for the basics of long-term care. Long-term care. Register at realinvestmentadvice.com for our virtual lunch and learn on long-term care. June 24th at noon. Realinvestmentadvice.com. 